Good evening, everybody. Today is um, the eve of Holy Wednesday, and as we see throughout the hours, the, the theme of today is very, very clear in all the hours. It's marriage, marriage. I want to give a brief overview on the custom uh, for, for Jewish marriage because I think it's important to understand the custom as it relates to the Jews at that time because Christ came and expressed the same customs in order that they may understand. So in order for us to understand the parables that he gives, it's important for us to understand the custom. So for the ancient Jewish marriage custom, when a suitor would be interested in, um, in a girl or a female, he would go to their house, he would meet with the family, and particularly with the father, and he would start to begin the negotiations for a contract, a marriage contract. And once the agreement has been made and the, accre the agreed upon contract between all three parties, the, the man, the husband, the future bride, and the father, as well as the family, after this meeting, it, they will be officially considered betrothed or engaged to one another. So this is the first step. And then the next step, and Typically, the length of the engagement could vary. On some occasions, it could be that the engagement and the wedding occur actually in the same day. Um, but in most cases, there would be some space in between. So the next step after the contract was made between um, the family and the groom, the groom would go and prepare a place for himself and his bride. And typically, this would be a place already in his father's home. So he would prepare a place where no one else has, uh, has lived for himself and his bride. Meanwhile, the bride is supposed to be learning all the duties and the responsibilities that she will have in the married life. Once the place is ready, the groom would then gather his wedding companions, so his groomsmen, for lack of, uh, lack of a better term. And they would put on the finest clothes that they have and they would go and march throughout all of the towns and the villages and they would gather as many wedding guests as they could. And as they traveled, so they would, they would go from one place and their destination would be the bride and her home. So they would try and take the longest route in order to gather as many wedding guests as possible. And all the while, the bride would be waiting in anticipation. And because obviously this would, this would take a lot of time because travel was, was by foot, um, it wasn't uncommon for this, this step to go from the day into the night and even into the early hours of the morning. So since this took a lot of time, the bride would have to stay watching watching and waiting from day until night and even the early hours of the morning. And this required lamps full of oil in order for her to always be ready um, in anticipation for her groom to come and take her and begin the wedding ceremony. And once the groom arrived, he would take his bride back to the home where he has prepared both of them. He has prepared for both of them. And then they would enter the bridal chamber. And meanwhile, the guests are waiting outside. They would enter the bridal chamber, and then they would exit together. 
And then after they exited, the wedding festivities continued, typically for several days. And there's actually a reference in the book of Tobit mentioning that the, the festivities went up for two weeks. Um, and on very, very grand occasions, if the family was wealthy enough, they would give every single guest a wedding garment of their own so that they may enter and celebrate the wedding feast. This brings us to the very first hour of today where we have in Matthew uh, chapter 22, we have the parable of the wedding garment. And, and Christ says um, there, was, there was a wedding feast and there was um, a poor, the poor people were the ones invited to the feast and they were all giving wedding, given wedding garments. Yet there was one individual who was there, yet he didn't have a wedding garment. And I know it's, it's, it's odd for us to think that he was invited and yet he was kicked out. But we, we also have to pay attention to the fact that in order to get in, you were already given a wedding garment. So in this parable, this individual refused to wear the wedding garment. And this is why when he was caught, the, um, the gospel says, and he was speechless in verse, verse 13. And then he was cast out. He was cast out into outer darkness. St. Cyril of Jerusalem comments on this and he says, Put off, I beg you, fornication uncleanness and put on the brightest robe of chastity. This charge I give you before Jesus, the bridegroom of souls. You have been allowed a long notice. You have 40 days for repentance. So he's mentioning Lent. We've already went through the 40 days. We've had 40 days for repentance. You've had a full opportunity to both put off and wash and to put on and enter. But if you persist in an evil purpose, the speaker is blameless. But you must not look for the grace, for the water will receive, but the Spirit will not accept you. If anyone is conscious of his wound, let him take the salve. If anyone has fallen, let him arise. Let there be no Simon among you, no hypocrisy, no idle curiosity about the matter. So the day of the wedding feast, the day of the wedding feast is, is attributed to, to the day of judgment. That's why at the end of the gospel, Christ says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is, this is really, really scary to think about because we always think about, especially the Christ of the New Testament, we say loving and kind and merciful. And yet here he's saying there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in that day. We open the third hour with the prophecy according to the prophet Amos. And he quotes, he quotes the Lord. The Lord this is the Lord speaking. I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. For I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. This is very, very strong language that the Lord himself is proclaiming to Amos for him to proclaim to the people. He says, I hate, I despise your feast days. The feast days where we all enter, we come with lukewarm hearts. We're happy to celebrate, but we're always distracted with the endeavors of this world. And so 
God sees our hearts as impure, as not wholly committed to him, but going to and fro from day to day, from work, from our responsibilities for our families, from our schools, studying for our exams. And all these things, by the way, are not, are not, th- are not things we're supposed to cast aside, but rather we are supposed to consecrate everything that we do for Christ. And this is what he means when he says, um, I look at the heart. What, what does our heart look like? Do we, do we involve God in everything that we do? And we do, it, do we do it for his glory? Or do we only ask for his blessing? And do we only ask for the success of this thing? Um, we should take heed for this warning. Because when we come and celebrate these feasts, if we have an impure heart, the Lord himself said, I will not accept your peace offerings and take away from me the noise of your songs. This one hits me personally because I, I always love, you know, um, learning the beautiful hymns of the church. And yet sometimes when you are so focused on things other than Christ himself, even in the church, whether that be service or taking care of um, others or doing, doing these things that distract you from having your own personal time with the Savior, with the heavenly bridegroom, having your time with your spouse. This is the essence of what the spiritual life is. And then we go on to Matthew 24 and we start to see we start to see in the third hour the entrance of the bridegroom, the entrance of the bridegroom coming. And he says, two men in the field, one taken and one left. Two women grinding at the mill, one taken and the other left. And the meditation for the psalm, blessed is he whom you choose and take to yourself. This is, uh, the psalm is put here in reference to the gospel because the gospel is saying one taken and one left. And so the psalm says, blessed is he whom you choose and take to yourself. Blessed is the one worthy to be seen as the bride of the heavenly bridegroom. And then we go on to the sixth hour for the entrance of the bridegroom. And we have the parable of the ten virgins. We have five wives and five, five wise and five foolish Now, real quick, how many of the ten virgins had oil with them? Was it five or was it ten? So how many had oil? So when we look look at the gospel carefully, the five wise had oil and oil in surplus. The five foolish had not enough oil. So all ten had oil, but only five had surplus. Remember, because when we talked about the, the custom of the, of the wedding feast, the bride waiting for her bridegroom doesn't know when he's going to come. And so she should be prepared. She should be prepared for his coming. And so having extra oil is the normal and the standard. If someone who, ha- who doesn't have enough oil, 
isn't taking this, this marriage seriously or is not, is not truly waiting for the bridegroom in great anticipation. Um, I, I, I made the mistake of also thinking that the reason the five were foolish was because they didn't have any oil. But no, it was because they had not enough oil. So in the parable, there are symbols for each, um, each, each of the things mentioned. So the five, the five and five. St. Augustine likens the five virgins, or I'm sorry, the five foolish and the five wise to the five senses, the five senses that we have. The five wise virgins are the senses when they are pure and they are holy. They are consecrated to the Lord, focused on the bridegroom. The five foolish virgins are the five senses when our mind is not taking care of what we see what we hear, what we touch, what we do, all these things. And so the five senses are, can be both the five wise and the five foolish. And then the, the virgins are considered as being the church, the congregation, us, us. They are every single one of us. Paul, St. Paul says a beautiful thing in, in, the, in the second epistle to the Corinthians. He says, in chapter 11, verse 2, I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So Paul is explaining to the church at Corinth, saying, I have presented you as a chaste virgin. And then we, we look at the sleep. It's interesting because all ten slept, the five wise and the five foolish. And so, wouldn't it be fair that all of them should enter? Or wouldn't it be fair that since all of them slept, the five foolish should be cut some slack? But St. Augustine likens the sleep here to the sleep which no one escapes, which is death. And so, every single one of us will encounter and endure death. This is an unes unescapable truth. And then the cry being heard at midnight that the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Midnight here refers to a time where no one, no one knows, no one is aware. As, the, as, uh, as uh, the Lord said, the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. And so the time of midnight represents that, that time where people are unaware. And then we have the oil and the lamps. Different fathers have different interpretations, but for the most part, oil and the lamps refer to the good works and the virtues that we practice. So the virtues and the good works are that oil which allow our lamps to burn, the fuel that keeps the fire. And these good works and virtues are the fuel of our own spiritual life. Um, this is exactly how we practice spirituality by good works and virtues. And St. John Chrysostom actually likens it to almsgiving. If, um, if you have a chance, St. John Chrysostom has an incredible work called Wealth and Poverty. And he likens good works to giving to the poor and caring for the poor. He also mentions, and he says, if we give what we have to others, we make oil from this. Then we will not cry, give us oil, for our lamps are going out. 
nor shall we beg from others, nor shall we be shut out when we leave to buy oil, nor shall we hear that fearful and terrible voice while we are knocking at the doors, I do not know you. But he will acknowledge us, and we shall go in, the bri- we shall go in with the bridegroom, and having entered into the spiritual bride, the spiritual bride, bridal chamber, we shall enjoy good things innumerable. I entreat you, let us conceive some desire for those blessings. Let us long for that bridegroom. Let us be virgins as to the true virginity. For the Lord seeks after the virginity of the soul. Marriage has always been a very typical example that explains the relationship between God and us, his people. He uses marriage and I think um, in, in our modern day and age, sometimes we have an over-asceticism or a, a, a tendency to uh, prefer the ascetic life and the ascetic prax- practices and put that over marriage. And we lose, we, use the, we, use, we lose the value and the holiness of marriage because of that over um, Overemphasis on the ascetic life and the monastic life, which is which is great. M- marriage and monasticism are not meant to be pit against another. They are not meant to be. Oh, this is better than that, or that is better than this. Um, rather, they are two ways, two ways, and two callings. We forget that marriage is also a calling. We also we, we typically you know, ascribe the calling only to monasticism, but marriage is also a calling. And in marriage, the love that is felt between both spouses, the husband and the wife, is the very reflection of the love that God has for us. So the sanctity and the value of marriage is something something divine. It is a divine ordinance. And so we ought to treat our relationship with Christ as a spousal relationship. The word for love, actually, in, in Greek, there are four different words that can be translated as love. The first one, I'm sure we all have heard of, is agabi or agape, agape love. This is unconditional love or God's love. Another word for love is phileo or philo or philia. And this means, this means the, the, the brotherly love or the kind love, the friendship love. And then we have, the, then we have storge. Storge is another word which means the protective or the familial love. And then finally, we have eros. Eros is where we uh, get the term eroticism or erotica, and that is the, the romantic love, the sexual love. And for all these four loves, marriage is the only, the only thing that includes every single type of, of these four loves. You have the familial love, between a man and wife when they become they become one and have children you have this family love and then you have the friendship love 
because both spouses are obviously best friends. And then we have the eros, the, the romantic love that they share. And then you have agape, the divine love that unites them. The divine love that unites them and makes them one as well. So this, this idea of marriage should be at the very forefront when we consider our own relationship with Christ, our spiritual life. In the ninth hour, we talked about the rejected bride, the bride who was rejected by the bridegroom. In Hosea, he writes, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Throughout the prophecies and the prophets, the minor and the major prophets, throughout all of their writings, God ascribes, forgive me for, for the language, but he ascribes the nation of Israel as being a harlot, a harlot who has gone a whoring, a prostitute. And he says, you have become a harlot. You have left your bridegroom and you have pursued other gods. And the harsh reality is that this is not only representative of, of Israel, but rather ourselves today. What are the gods that we have in our homes? Is it money? Is it the desire to always be right? Is it anger? Is it the desire to always be the authority figure and not having compassion? We also have other gods. We have other gods that we put before the Lord and then we make room for the Lord only on Sunday or maybe Saturday if we're lucky. This, this is the life of the rejected bride from her bridegroom. This is the life that God himself hates. He declares that he hates this life. And we see this as being the very definition of being lukewarm. In Revelation, the church of Laodicea was being accused of being lukewarm. And he says, the Lord says, I could wish you were either cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you from my mouth. And so this lukewarmness, this idea of being half in, half out, this idea of fitting spirituality when it is convenient in our lives, this makes God sick to his stomach. This makes God want to vomit us out of our own mouths, makes him say to us, I do not know you. Assuredly, I do not know you. Very, very harsh words. And in the gospel of the ninth hour, we see Christ still attributing the same things to the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, woe to you. On you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. 
This is also very, very interesting because the blood of the righteous Abel on you, on you and me, Cain was the one that killed Abel, not me. And yet I am guilty of his blood because I make myself one with sin whenever I commit sin. And so the guilt of sin covers everything, covers everyone. And yet the one who is able to clothe us new is Christ himself. We see a change in the 11th hour when we look at the wise bride. In, psalm, in the psalm of the, the 11th hour is actually taken from the 6th hour Igbeya. We pray it every day when we read the 6th hour. It is Psalm 56, and it starts, uh, verse 1, saying, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until iniquity passes by. St. Augustine comments on this, uh, this psalm and says, Christ in the Passion says, Have mercy on me, O God. To God, God says, Have mercy on me. He that with the Father has mercy on you, in you cries, Have mercy on me. For that part of him which is crying, Have mercy on me, is yours, is yours and mine. From you he received this, for the sake of you, that you should be delivered. With flesh he was clothed. The flesh itself cries, Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. Man himself, soul and flesh, to this end he suffered, in order that he might teach us how to suffer. To this end he rose again, in order that he might teach how to hope for rising again. So we see in this passage, that Christ takes on the form of humanity and covers all of humanity with his own righteousness and teaches us how we might become righteous through his example, that we might be crucified with him. And so when we look on the image of the cross, and we say, thine is the power, the glory, the majesty, and the kingdom. This is our king. This is our bridegroom. And where is the place of the bride? With the bridegroom. They are one. The marriage between Christ and the church is the marriage between God and us. And so, God is crucified. We also ought to be crucified daily by sacrificing for our loved ones and sacrificing not only for our loved ones but for our enemies this is what it means to live a life worthy to be called the bride of Christ the bride of the heavenly bridegroom we take example we take the example of Christ and we, we attribute it to ourselves and after the cross we have hope that we will rise again with him and enjoy the bridal chamber together in the heavenly kingdom. I pray that God bestows on us his grace and his blessing for the rest of this Pascha week, that we may celebrate with him, with all of us, with pure hearts, the glorious feast of the resurrection for many more years and peaceful times. To him be the glory and the honor both now and forever and unto the ages of all ages. Amen.